All right, good morning. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be in verse 7. Uh, we're continuing in a series uh, on the Beatitudes. Um, and basically, the Beatitudes are the introduction to Jesus' larger uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, through Matthew seven through uh, five through seven, excuse me, um, and what we have at the very onset of this uh, are Jesus laying forth for us what he's calling disciples to be in the kingdom, what it looks like to live in the blessing of God's people, and so what he lays out for us are these. We know them as the Beatitudes, the things that are valued among us. As the people of God. And what we found often, if you haven't already encountered this, if you've been with us in some length, these things are contrary to what we daily often think of. The values that we're often inundated with in our own life and in our day-to-day struggles. And today uh, is no less that as we look at the beatitude of being merciful. But yet the whole point of our series in looking at the Beatitudes, is simply that Jesus is calling us to be a people set free and transformed to live in God's blessedness. This isn't something we earn by these values. This is what it means to live out of the blessedness of God's kingdom. And so, uh, so today, uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 7. But before we look at that text, will you just join me in just a quick word of prayer? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a word that gives us life, that it is as necessary to our life as the very food we eat, that it is as necessary as the air we breathe in this moment. Thank you that it is the bread of life offered up to us. Thank you that you've not left us groping for a word, but that you've given us a word. And thank you that this morning that it's not a stale word, but it is a fresh word that you bestow to us every day, fresh mercies, that you meet our needs in a new way every day. They are new to us, as your word tells us, every day. But thank you for the grace that has met our greatest need in Jesus, that he's restored our dignity as sons and daughters of the Most High when we were yet sinners. And so, God, as we look into your word this morning, Holy Spirit, would you open it up that we might behold wondrous things? Would you open us by it that we might see the areas of our life where we've grown cold to the wonder of how you've met us in mercy and that you might instill a desire to savor it and bestow it to others, our fellow man. So lead our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Before we kind of jump into the text a little bit, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction of someone I think serves as a, a really a fitting example of what Jesus is going to get at here in this beatitude. We've oftentimes, when we think about like the dumb move disciple, okay, hashtag dumb move disciple, we can think oftentimes of who? Peter, right? 
Like the dude constantly had uh, the foot and mouth kind of syndrome, if you will. And I found myself just sort of like uh, relating to him in a lot of ways, if you found yourself there as well. Uh, But this morning, I want to draw our attention to another one of Jesus' disciples who had his own way of doing these things. He had his own reputation. um, And I think it's a fitting, again, case study for what Jesus is calling us to as well. In the New Testament, what we have is this story of one of Jesus' disciples. And by tradition, we are told that he is likely the youngest of the clan. Okay? He is likely one of the youngest. And usually that goes along with being the youngest, the most idealistic and harshest at times. He's one one of uh, two brothers, and they had a reputation, so much so that they received a nickname from Jesus. Now, that's kind of a cool thought, like nickname from Jesus, that's pretty sweet, right? But the nickname kind of was for a negative reason, because they had a reputation They had a reputation, actually, for such harshness and impulsiveness that Jesus gave them the name Sons of Thunder, right? Sounds like a cool name, but winds up not being so, right? One of the most fitting examples of this reputation sort of lived out in the New Testament, we see laid out for us in Luke chapter 9, and this is one that has struck me time and time again in my life following Jesus. And it's easy to overlook if you're, it, because it's a part of a narrative and it's kind of just a little blurb there. But what we find is that Jesus and his disciples are passing through these villages of the Samaritans on their way to Jerusalem. And in Matthew chapter 9, verses 50 through 54, somewhere around there, what we find is uh, this village of the Samaritans would have been, if you know anything about uh, pious Jews, they would have hated being anywhere close to a Samaritan. A Samaritan village. It's a dreaded place for someone, a pious Jew to be. And so as they're on their way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans don't receive Jesus or his disciples. And so like any harsh, impulsive young guy, John's response, this is the disciple, is this. Hey, Lord, since they didn't listen to us, you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? Because, yeah, right, I mean, that makes sense, right? They didn't receive us, let's call fire down. And so what we find is Jesus actually rightly so rebukes him from this. But in God's providential sense of humor... What happens later on in the book of Acts? If we, when we come to Acts chapter 8, we find that the Samaritans have received the gospel. And there is a need to send one out to spread the gospel. And there's a need for someone to be sent by the church in Jerusalem to pray for the Samaritans, to lay hands on them, and even so that they might be encouraged to receive the Spirit. Guess who gets signed up? We know this disciple as the Apostle John. But here's what is even more confounding. That if you continue to read in the New Testament, you find that John eventually bore another nickname. And this nickname was the Apostle of Love. This disciple 
who was a man of such harshness, was made more known for tenderness and compassion at the end of his life. And so that beckons us to ask the question, what could have taken a man of such harshness and impulsiveness and made him more known for compassion, love, and tenderness? As a matter of fact, John, if you read John's gospel account, and if you read uh, his three letters to the church, he mentions love more than any other writer in the New Testament. And I believe John serves for us as a a case study, a test study, that exemplifies what this beatitude embodies. And that is that only the merciful, ardent love of our God can do this. Only God's love can make us merciful. Only the mercy of Jesus makes us merciful. And so the main point I want to kind of distill down for you this morning from this passage of Scripture is this, that Jesus sets free people to be those who readily show compassion. That just like John's natural inclination at first was a posture of harshness and a posture of sort of retribution, that the mercy of God at work in our life through the love of Jesus instead causes that natural posture to become that of compassion. And this is the meaning of the beatitude for us this morning. And so, as one commentator and theologian sums up rightly, Mercy is this. It is compassion for people in need. And so the merciful, then, are those who relate to others with a forgiving and compassionate spirit. Being merciful, then, is the natural result of having received mercy. You see, mercy reproduces itself in us through Christ. And so being the first beatitude now that's turned outward to our fellow man, we now see that this requires us to realize that through meekness and compassion that others are not so unlike us in our condition. That they are also needy just like we are. And so if you followed with us in any length in these beatitudes, you see that it begins to work from a working out within, a focus in and of ourselves, of our own understanding, of our own poverty of spirit, our own spiritual bankruptcy, mourning the sin and the shards of brokenness in our own life before God, then coming under him in submission to his reign and rule and authority, and then ultimately craving hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and then being received that through mercy were turned outward to bestow that to our fellow man. That just as the Beatitudes force us inward, then we discover that when we receive the righteousness of Christ through faith, he lavishes it upon us and then calls us to outside of ourselves to bestow it in this world. That's what the Beatitudes are getting at. And so this is the first of those. Now we've looked inward, we've dealt with our own life, we dealt with ourselves and our own need, which is great. And now, having met that need and overflowed with mercy and righteousness, now he requires us to do the same. 
And so our forgiveness, though, if you look at the end of the promise of the beatitude, is it that our mercifulness merits our receiving of mercy, but it is that our forgiveness and our mercy that evidences that we ourselves have been forgiven, that we ourselves have been received mercy in our lives. So it's not that we earn mercy by being merciful, but that we evidence mercies at work. The remedy has taken hold when we show ourselves merciful. But if we are not merciful... We cannot claim to have received Christ's mercy. And therefore, we cannot look forward to receiving it at the end of our days. And so Jesus' point here is that we are judged by our own harshness in mercy. But being merciful is the natural result of having received the grace of Christ. And so as Tim Keller helpfully points out in his book, Ministries of Mercy, and again, we're just going to scratch the surface of mercy and ministry and what that entails and how mercy even at times can limit mercy. We're not going to get into all that. But he helpfully in this book does, and one of the things that he so helpfully lays out for us as the point of this beatitude as well as the the parable of the Good Samaritan that will illustrate this for us, that Jesus is willing to humble us with the love of God what it requires of us so that we will be able to receive the love of God that is offered to us. And so that's my hope and my prayer for us in this time as we examine this passage of Scripture is that we might be able to receive and savor the love of God that that is offered to us that it might abound to give it to others. This is my goal, my objective for us today. And so being God's people means that we are those who are merciful. So let me give you kind of a little bit of where I'm headed here, okay? Let me kind of lay out the ingredients for you here, okay? Here's where we're headed. Having defined mercy, compassion for those who are in need, I want now to give you some markers, kind of give you the lay of the land, give you the tour of the landscape of what the Scripture lays out for us as mercy, being merciful. So I want to give you somewhat of a biblical theology of mercy through the scriptures and then ultimately conclude with what produces these in us and how we might cultivate, cultivate, what is wrong with me this morning? Cultivate these in our life, okay? And so here we are, six markers of the merciful, okay? The first one is this, the merciful recognize inconveniences as providences. The Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, again, I alluded to this, that this is Jesus' illustration of mercy to its highest, that we see here that of all three people that pass the man who has been robbed and beaten on the road, all of them pass him by except the one that is least likely to do so, right? A natural enemy, even more so. But what do we notice about the Samaritan in his work? He sought to work within the context of the immediate need there in front of him. He didn't deal with the cause of the man's need, not that that isn't important, but he didn't deal with that 
first. He didn't complain about the failure of society to meet that man's need or to perpetuate that man's need. He went to great lengths and personal risk and inconvenience to bring relief to what was right in front of him. And this is what mercy calls us to. You see, as one commentator says, mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone's life who's been broken by sin, whether it be theirs or the sin of someone else. And in moments where I'm getting down on my hands and knees, okay, I've been doing some yard work this summer because I've been putting it off in the springtime, making it harder on myself. Rarely is getting down on your hands and knees something that's convenient. And rarely is it that you're going to be able to actually go from that posture in, back into whatever it was you were doing. It's messy, right? It's time-consuming. It's inconvenient. And yet, we see again that Jesus is contrasting the values of the kingdom with the values of the world. And the, ver- the world prefers their own plans over the providence of God. The world prefers to be self-seeking and attend to its own life and refuses to pay the cost of inconvenience. But mercy comes in inconvenience. You see, mercy relieves the consequence of sin in the lives of others, both sinners and those sinned against. And differing, contrasting it from what grace is, grace deals with the condition, being sin itself, offering pardon, while mercy deals with the consequence, offering relief. And so we hold those two together in God's grace and mercy. Yet, what we find is God doesn't just give us pardon and deal with the source of our condition, but he also deals with the consequence and offering relief. And here's what I found in my own life, as someone who is uh, a little bit neurotic, if I can personally confess that to you, if you break my force of concentration, I kind of get off track. And so something the Lord really started working on me in the last two to three years is this thought that mission is bound up in the inconvenient. That I'm often confronted with those moments where God wants to use me and opportunities to restore dignity are usually the times where I am least likely to see them in front of me. They're the least convenient moments of my life. Where something heavy I'm carrying in my life or I'm busy doing something else and I get that text or that or that email, or that phone call, or whatever that might be, or I'm just confronted in public with something. It's rarely convenient, but the mission of God is bound up, I'm finding, in the inconvenient. And my impatience oftentimes is more of an issue of belittled compassion than it is of belittled time in my life. And so the first marker of the merciful is that they recognize inconveniences as providences. The second marker um, that the scripture gives us is that the merciful are tender towards the afflictions of others. We're often told that Jesus' first response to people when he came into contact with them was that he had compassion upon them. 
Likewise, in 2 Timothy verses one through, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, we find the example of one Ephesians Christian who is not named anywhere else um, throughout the Scriptures, um, who Paul praises because he disregarded the shame and stigma that was connected with befriending and serving someone who is in chains. As a matter of fact, if we... we read that passage, we see not only did this Ephesians Christ, Ephesian Christian do this, but he actually pursued Paul all the way to Rome in order to continue to refresh him. He was not ashamed. He was tender towards these afflictions. So mercy, therefore, does not hide behind scruples in order to protect itself from costly service. That's Jesus' point in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. We have the Levite and the priest who pass by the need, the needy one, and the Samaritan who extends mercy instead. And so Jesus' point is that it's better to risk being ceremonially unclean than failing to show mercy to someone who's in need. And yet the Levites and the and the priest in that story saw the risk of being ceremonially unclean, the risk of putting themselves in jeopardy often as more important than showing mercy. Something that actually was more of their role to be a dispenser of mercy. And yet one of the great cruelties that we see in this world is that it prefers to insulate itself from the pains and calamities of other people, does it not? And so here's what this means for us Christians, that we should never offer diversions from expressions of need or show partiality with ones over the other. You see, when we begin to speak of worthiness or priority in meeting needs, we have lost touch with mercy altogether because mercy comes to the undeserved. And so marker number three of the merciful is that they are inclined to pity. When we're inclined to mercy, we actually reflect the character of our Father in heaven. We see this throughout the scriptures. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, uh, Jesus says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In the Old Testament of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt burnt offerings. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul roots all of our mercy in the origin of the Father, our Father who is the Father of all mercies. And so, while the merciful are inclined to pity, the worldly, in contrast, are inclined to resentfulness. And so Ray Ortland, helpfully a modern pastor and theologian, he illustrates these kind of these beatitudes by giving each of them an antonym to kind of hold up alongside so we can see what, what the opposite looks like that is often perpetuated in the world so we can see it most clearly. He says it this way, in his unbeatitude is, that, is this, Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. And so the vengeful... Desire is one of violence and outrage in return for having ever been offended. Whether that's perceived or in reality. But what we see in Jesus 
He's calling us to be people who are postured rather by mercy, by pity, rather than vengefulness. And so as the reformer John Calvin puts it, they are blessed who not only are prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also to take on that of other people. The fourth marker of the merciful are that they exhibit a readiness to forgive and overlook offense. Again, this is going back to the posture illustrated uh, in the Apostle John, that there's a readiness of forgiveness and overlooking offense. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17 uses this, this to, to describe it. A man who is kind benefits himself. In the Old Testament word there translated kind is the Old Testament Hebrew word translated merciful throughout the Old Testament. So a man who is merciful benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Have you ever noticed when you're vengeful, what you wind up doing in your seeking of revenge is actually make yourself more miserable? That's what this text is getting at. And yet, bound up in the very definition of mercy is that a merciful person is sympathetic, shows leniency or forgiveness, especially, this is hard, towards the one who has offended them. And so the world prefers cruelty and finds revenge delicious. But the Christ follower in the kingdom, through mercifulness, is ready to forgive and overlook offense. And so in Psalm chapter 109, verses 16 and 17, what we find is this picture of the unmerciful, unkind person. Uh, the psalmist says he found no pleasure in blessing and never thought of doing kindness or mercy. Never crossed his mind. And this is picked up on in the, in the New Testament as a lack of mercy is something that marks those who betray Jesus. It's a characteristic actually listed of Judas in the Old Testament. He criticizes Mary who lavishes Jesus' with uh, Jesus's feet with this expensive anointing oil and costly perfume. Yet in John chapter 12, we are told that he does this not because he cares about the poor, or costliness of this, but because he was a thief and he used to help himself to the money bag in his charge. So a lack of mercy and a readiness to be lacking to forgive in these ways is actually contrary to that of the kingdom. The fifth marker of the merciful is that they are slow to anger and difficult to provoke. It's tied to the meek as well. So Proverbs chapter 19 verse 8 says that slowness and restraint to anger and to quick to overcome forgive, or to offer forgiveness, to overlook offense is a marker of a righteous person. Yet the world, however, enjoys giving full vent to anger. And so showing the linkage between the Beatitudes, like we've already kind of laid out for you, the classical commentator by the name of Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, they are the meek who rarely and hardly are provoked, but quickly and easily are pacified. And who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one, having 
the rule of their own spirits. This is the characteristic of meekness. Those that are merciful flowing out of that are those who piously and charitably are inclined to pity, help, and succor persons in misery. And that leads us lastly to the last and sixth marker of the merciful is this. And this is where I want to park and hang out here for just a minute. Is that they understand the vastness of their forgiven debts and their restored dignity. So much so that they see them as greater than the voids that they see in others. This is important, friends. The world may feel their debts small and their debtors enormous, but those of the kingdom see themselves as debtors of mercy to the world because they are sent by the one who has lavished them with mercy beyond they could ever earn. They could ever plunge the depths of their need. And so the Beatitudes turn us inward, again, just to review. They turn us inward to see our spiritual poverty, grieving our state of guilt before God and sin, coming under his authority and meekness, and hungering for righteousness as spiritual beggars, and finding not only that he meets our need, but he lavishes it upon us, restores our dignity. No longer are we called according to our sin, but we're called the beloved of God, children of God, rightful heirs with the Son. And then this same beatitude turns us outward in our interactions with others. You see, the blessed of the kingdom see the needs of others as extension points, tributaries, yes, even conduits, of being able to dispense the mercy they've received to others. So we, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us a story again to illustrate this, of the unmerciful servant. That there was a master who had a servant whose debt was greater than a lifetime could ever make up, could pay back. And he comes to his master pleading his forgiveness, and the master forgives his debt entirely. And yet what we find in that passage is that that servant then turned and demanded to be paid what was owed in a much lesser amount by another servant. And we see that later the master confronts him, and Jesus so too confronts those of this same mindset, and says, should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so, friends, as one commentator says, nothing proves more clearly that we've been forgiven than our readiness to forgive, to forgive and be forgiven, to show mercy and to receive mercy. These belong together, cannot be undone. So mercy, don't miss this, cannot be mustered up from within. It cannot be something that is guilted into you from Jesus. It is something that's produced in response to mercy. Mercifulness is produced from a heart of gratitude for the mercy that's been received. Aren't you glad that Christ doesn't call you and guilt you into service? Christ doesn't call you and through guilting you into gratitude. 
Christ doesn't call you and guilt you into generosity. He only asks that you receive and therefore respond in gratitude. So the Bible does not use guilt-producing motivation in its demands for mercy. I cannot produce mercy in my life. I cannot produce mercy in you through a guilting. It's only a response to the gift of Christ that produced this. And so Keller, again, is helpful. Mercy is spontaneous, superabounding love, which comes from an experience of the grace of God. This alone produces mercifulness, that we have received it. And so having talked about what motivates our mercy, now I want to transition to give you three Things that cultivate a posture of mercifulness and produce a merciful spirit within you. Three gratitudes that will do this. And it's an awareness and an awakeness to just your everyday neediness, your everyday needs, your everyday alleviation of those needs, and your recognition of your restored dignity in Christ. And so here's the first one I want to give you. Bring a fresh awareness of your neediness and how God's kindness has met those needs. The scriptures tell us that he gives us mercies ev- that are new every day. Every day. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus lays these things out. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your body. For your Father in heaven knows you need those things, and he meets those things. So start there. What fresh awareness about your life and your body Has he met in new ways each and every day? There's plenty of these. And as we do this, we recognize we're not self-actuators. We can't, we're not self-sovereigns that produce these things in our life. They are given to us. And then the second one is this. What relief and alleviation from the effects of sin have been brought to you every day? This time of year is kind of easy, right? Like, the, my air conditioning kind of went out last week. That was a huge alleviation. Praise Jesus for that kind of thing, right? So, I mean, when you start to rehearse these, you're thankful for things like a cloud that gives you shade, and you realize that's a merciful alleviation and relief that you did nothing to earn. And then the third one is this. Where has dignity been restored to you in the midst of your own brokenness? Where have you found yourself flat on the face in the pit of your own doing and in your shame, and yet Jesus calls you out and says, this won't define you as long as you are in my grace. Your life is set in my grace and my mercy, and I declare you a child. I declare you an heir. I declare, declare you my beloved. This will not define you. My love defines you. And as you recount these things, here's what the grace of God produces in us. It's, we remind ourselves of these things. It's easier than to see ourselves accurately and therefore then to see others accurately and not read a narrative into them but to see them for as they are, as the stories that are out there, and to see them with compassion. Mercy alone can produce this merciful posture in us. So Jesus sets people free to be those who readily 
show compassion in this world. As the worship team returns, I have just a few questions for us in response to these things. And it's simply this. It is so easy for our our understanding of mercy in the Christian life to cool. Somehow, Somehow we can create this idea that we are not so much in need. But when we actually follow the Beatitudes as they're called us to, we realize we are the most of those in need. And so the question is, is if we lack a posture of mercifulness, we must ask, have we lost sight of our vast need of mercy? Have we felt our need of Jesus and what he offers to us? And is this due to some sort of superficial understanding of the kindness of our Savior? But if you find yourself here today and you realize that there is still yet a great need that is unmet in your life, you're face down in your shame, whatever that might be, and you think nothing could possibly restore the dignity that you once had and you lost. No, that is right there in that very point where Jesus offers mercy to you. That he meets you in your times of greatest need and in everyday sense, in every need that you might have thereafter to restore dignity that you might be a beloved and live to be merciful out of the overflow of his merciful grace in your life. Let me pray with you. God, thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that your kindness is without end to us. Thank you that it's not something that we deserve, we conjured up, but it is something you freely offer to us. And so, Lord, thank you that in the pit of our deepest need, you met us with grace and mercy unfathomable. You declare us sons and daughters of the Most High. God, having redeemed us and met us overflowing with the righteousness you give us, you now call us to freely offer it to others. So might we never tire of this. Might we never lose the wonder of this, that we might extend it to others and and savor it in our own lives for your honor and glory. Thank you that you offer us this grace and mercy.